Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to thank you particularly for this portion of Scripture. Lord, where there is so much comfort. As we see that there there will be trials, as we know there will be trials, many of us are currently experiencing trials, but Lord, we know that these trials and the suffering last but for a moment from an eternal perspective, Lord, and our joy will be everlasting if we are trusting in Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would take these words and apply them to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we would see the eternal truth that is contained here, that, that is true not just for those original disciples, but Lord, for all disciples, for all who are truly followers of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Death is a part of life, and many people die suddenly, without warning, gone like that, from this life to the next. But what would you say if you knew that you only had a few moments left in this life? As your family and your closest friends are gathered around, what would you want to say to them? Surely you wouldn't be talking about something as inane as, or trivial as, as, as hockey or the weather. Surely you wouldn't be bringing up disagreements that you've had unless it is to try and work those things out. You're going to want to offer words of comfort, words of encouragement, and words of hope. On Thursday, I was blessed to be at the graveside service for Lucille Knapp. And her granddaughter read a letter that Lucille had written some time before in preparation for her death. And it was a very poignant moment as her granddaughter read that letter that Lucille had written by her own hand as she charged her family to be radical for Jesus and reminded them to keep short accounts with God and with one another. These were touching, famous last words. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. In Smyrna, in 155 AD, he was commanded by the Roman proconsul to deny his faith in Jesus Christ or be torn apart by wild beasts. Undaunted, Polycarp stood firm. So next, the proconsul threatened to burn him at the stake. To this, Polycarp responded, Thou threatenest that fire which burneth for a season, and after a little while is quenched. For thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Come, do what thou wilt. And he was then burned alive for his faith in Jesus Christ. These were challenging, famous last words. In 1934, John and Betty Stam and their three-month-old daughter traveled to China as missionaries with the China Inland Mission. At the age of 18, Betty had written down this prayer. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Can you pray that prayer? Can you pray that prayer 
Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost. At any cost. Now and forever. This is the prayer of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And it was actually this prayer inspired uh, Elizabeth Elliot at the age of 12 in, in her own zeal for missions. And most of us are probably familiar with the fact that her, that her husband, Jim, was, was killed by Aka Indians in pursuing the gospel call. But the Stams, that very same year, the year that they, that they arrived in China on December 7th, John was arrested by communist soldiers and brought to their headquarters. And that night he wrote a letter to the missions board telling them that, that they were being held captive by the communists for a ransom of $20,000. They said, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of communist bandits. Whether we will be released or not, no one knows. May God be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1.20. These are valiant last words. But here in John 16, verses 16 to 33, we, we come to the end of the upper room discourse. Jesus and the remain, remaining 11 disciples are about to leave for the Garden of Gethsemane. So for the, the previous few chapters, he has been preparing the disciples for his departure. And apart from a few words and comments to them in the garden, these are Jesus' final recorded words to his disciples before he leaves to go to the cross. And these last words are, are touching, and they are challenge, challenging, and they are valiant, as Jesus knows what is awaiting him, and as Jesus knows what is awaiting them. There's some massive trials that are headed their way, but Jesus tells them that through it all, joy can be theirs. So this morning we're going to see how Jesus tells the disciples that they will experience brief grief but lasting joy in verses 16 to 22 and answered prayer and full joy in verses 23 to 28 and consuming fear but overcoming joy in verses 29 to 33. So first of all, in verses 16 to 22, Jesus tells the disciples that they will experience brief grief but lasting joy. He tells them again, you will only see me for a little while longer. He first said this to the crowds in John chapter 7 when the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to arrest him. He said it again to the disciples in the upper room in John 12 and John 13 and John 14. But now with John 16, the words a little while are repeated seven times. And Jesus adds a very important piece of information that it would only be a little while before they would see him again. He told them that he was coming back, but now he tells them that it will be soon. Of course, he told them repeatedly that he would be killed and raised again from the grave on the third day, but they did not understand. Just one example is Mark 9.31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He had said this as, as clearly as that, but they did not understand. So why? Why didn't they understand? Had they, had they tuned out? Now, I know when I'm focusing on, focusing on something and somebody speaks to me 
it do often doesn't register until they actually get my attention. And that might take a couple of minutes for me to snap out of whatever it is that I'm focusing on. Usually a word like dessert will help. But, but I don't think that's it. With the disciples, this was more than mere inattention. Jesus was telling them things that they simply could not understand. It did not compute. It was like he was speaking a different language. If I say to my dog, I'm just going to finish this, and then I will take you for a walk, all the dog hears is blah, 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 walk. And it gets all excited, wagging her tail, and runs to the door. They just did not understand. If you do a search sometime on the words they did not understand in the Gospels, you'll be amazed at how many times the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But before you criticize the disciples for their ignorance, remember, they did not have the benefit of hindsight like we have. These events all took place prior to the cross. And people don't go around rising from the dead very often. That's true today, and it was true then. But far more importantly, the thought that the Messiah could be killed didn't even enter into their thinking. They had no category for this. But they couldn't have understood. It was impossible for them to understand because they did not yet have the Holy Spirit guiding them into the truth, helping them to understand. We saw that back in, in verses 13 and 14 last week. So the disciples didn't understand, but instead of going to Jesus, the one who could actually answer their questions, instead they discussed it among themselves. They're wondering what he meant by a little while. They're wondering what he had meant earlier about going to the Father. Verse 19 says that Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. Now he was omniscient, but I don't think he would have, been, he would have needed to be omniscient here in order to understand what was going on. When I was a teacher, I could tell when students couldn't understand what I was saying. I didn't need to be omniscient to see the puzzled looks and the heads close together and the glances in my, in my direction and the hushed tones as they discussed it. But believe it or not, I can usually pick it up when I'm preaching too. I can see puzzled looks and sometimes even um, unhappy looks when people hear what I'm saying. But Jesus verifies their question and then doesn't answer it. He knows for sure that this is exactly what they're saying, and he repeats the question that is on their minds, but doesn't answer their question. And this reminds us that sometimes the question isn't really the question. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. But again, I don't think he needed to be omniscient to figure it out. He focuses on how his departure will impact them. This is what they were really worried about. It says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The disciples will leap and, and lament. They will be scattered when he gets arrested, and they will be shattered when he dies on the cross. They're still weeping three days later when Mary Magdalene came with news that would turn their upside-down world's the right way around. They were sorrowful, but the world would rejoice. The world hated Jesus, 
The Pharisees plotted against him. The mob shouted, crucify him. The soldiers mocked him and beat him. This is not what Isaac Watts was talking about when he wrote Joy to the World. It was exactly the opposite. The world's joy wouldn't last, but neither would the disciples' sorrow. And he who laughs, 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 last, laughs best. The disciples' sorrow would be turned to joy. It would be turned to joy. And Jesus here uses an illustration that the mothers here would be very familiar with. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, some of you here know Randy and Susan Alders. Randy was, was one of the, the groomsmen in our wedding. And uh, they just had their first baby, Reuben, yesterday morning. Now, Randy is a big guy. Randy is six foot seven. And so I would, I would imagine that, that there was some, some trepidation on Susan's part leading into the delivery. And, and I'm sure it was not, the, the delivery process was not a pleasant thing. And, and Jane and I will be having our first baby here in, in less than two months, Lord willing. And, and I've, I've got to say that, that I've already been, been dumbfounded with, with, what, with what's been happening in Jane's body. And it's really, I think that, that virtually every system of her body has been impacted in this pregnancy, and, and love it in not a good way. The, just the discomfort that, that women put up with. Again, we know from, from Genesis 3 that this is, this is part of the curse. But it's a painful experience. And, and i got, I got to say, I'm, I'm going to have to be strong when I'm in there because seeing my wife in pain like that is going to be a very, very difficult thing. Men, maybe you, you experience this yourself. But the agony of childbirth, the, the pain that, that they say is, is about the most painful thing that a human being can experience, is it's not going to last. There's a joy that, that comes on the other side, that the, the joy that comes when that, that child is born causes the woman to forget the pain that she has just been through. Now, it is a miracle to me that women would want to go through that again. But they do. Some quite a few times. This is a miracle, and it's, it's amazing. James was just telling me yesterday that, that there's actually a hormone that is in a woman's body that gives feelings of euphoria after childbirth. That, that causes her to, 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 to feel better after going through that pain. Now, this is, this is a miracle of God's design. But I'm sure that that feeling of euphoria doesn't compare to the feelings of joy that the woman feels when she sees the baby that she's been carrying in her womb for nine months for the first time. Now, I've heard of women being in labor for 50 hours. 50 hours. Now, I can't even imagine doing something that I enjoy for 50 hours straight, let alone, let alone labor. But even still, even 50 hours of excruciating pain is, well, maybe not exactly forgotten, but far overshadowed by the joy that the woman experiences when seeing her child for the first time. 
And so Jesus says to the disciples in verse 2, it's going to be like that for you. You also will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy from you. The joy that the disciples will experience after the resurrection will cause their sorrow to vanish in an instant. And this joy is permanent. Nothing could rob them of their joy, not even torture, not even their own death could rob them of this joy. But imagine for a moment if you had been there. If you had physically seen Jesus after the resurrection. Think of all the questions that would be answered in that second. Jesus was actually alive. He really did come back. There really is life after death. Jesus really does keep his promises. Now, beloved, we may have not been eyewitnesses to these events, but we can know with even more certainty than these first disciples had. We know that these things are true because we know them from the Word of God and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Have you thought about that? The testimony of God's Word is more sure than even your own eyes. And the sorrow at the death of Jesus and the joy of his resurrection isn't just for those first disciples. I'm sure many of us have, have wept as we read the account of the death of Christ. I remember reading Isaiah 53 in Seminary Chapel. It was a service on a Maundy Thursday, and I was weeping so much that I could barely get through the text. Now, this doesn't come from me. This is not from my flesh. This is the, the Holy Spirit implanting these things in my heart so that I know them in my heart to be true. So confident that I can be affected like that. And I want to live there. Don't you? I want to be continually conscious of the death of Christ for me, for you. But I don't just want to be focused on his death. I want to be focused on his life. So even more, I hope that the resurrection causes you to rejoice. Beloved, we hope in a risen Savior. Those disciples saw Jesus again, and we will see him too. We will see him too. So that hope was not just, the hope of his return is not just for the three days between his death and his resurrection. It is also a hope for his return. And because of this, there's an application for Christians that, that we can know experience in any sorrow. Whatever sorrow we are we're experiencing, we know that it will not last, but we will have eternal joy. The world wants to play now and pay later. I would much rather have short-term pain for long-term gain. All of Christ's disciples must follow in the footsteps of the man of sorrows. We will all suffer in this life, and I would much rather face struggles in this life knowing that I will receive lasting joy then enjoy the sinful pleasures for a little while, knowing that I would suffer later. 
Beloved, we know that our sorrow is not going to last. We know that the Lord is going to return and that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. We know that our joy will be eternal. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the, joy, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we can see. We can see the work that these trials are working in us in the power of the Holy Spirit, how they're, they're causing us to press into Christ, how they're causing us to have hope, to have a peace that passes all understanding. And doesn't that make the trials worthwhile? It does. It does. Jesus goes on to say in verses 23 to 27 that the disciples will, will experience answered prayer and full joy. Answered prayer and full joy. Verses 23 to 27. Now Jesus tells them that they won't just have joy, but that they will have full joy. And that this comes through answered prayer. He says in verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So what day is Jesus speaking of here? Is he speaking of, of the day of the Lord or of the day of Pentecost? Well, from this context, I believe that he's speaking primarily here of that era that began on the third day, that began on the first day of the week, that began on the day of his resurrection. The words you'll ask nothing of me could refer here either to, to asking a question or asking for something. Now again, I, I believe that, that both are true, but I believe that the context favors the former. The context favors, favors the former, that there, he's speaking initially to asking a question, but he's going to, to, to transition then into applying this to asking for something. And this... This actually fits with, with John's pattern of using words in this gospel account that, that have double meaning. He does this, we've seen this repeatedly throughout John's gospel. Now the disciples had just been asking Jesus questions. And besides this, until now they had never actually prayed directly to Jesus. This is tied to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Remember in John 20, Verses 19 to 33, where we read that, that it was on the, the day of resurrection, on the first day of the week, that, that Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost as the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit who would teach them all things and would guide them into the truth. So initially, I believe he's speaking there of asking questions of Jesus. But then he continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked, asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now this is the final truly, truly that Jesus will give until after the resurrection. Gerald Borchardt points out that this double Amen statement is particularly significant because it confirms the coming of a new era for the disciples. It would bring a new way in which they would relate to the Godhead and thus to Jesus. 
It introduces a, a new aspect of asking, of asking of prayer, of praying in the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus had introduced this concept back in John 14, verses 13 and 14, where he said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And they said it again in, in chapter 15, verse 16. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And now he's saying it again. So what does this mean to, to pray in Jesus' name? And we've talked about this before. Some people see them as, as like magic words that, that force God to give them whatever they want, as though God would give them a red Ferrari just because they asked for it in Jesus' name. But to pray in Jesus' name means something infinitely better. Infinitely better. For others, the words in Jesus' name have become so familiar that they almost slur the words together so that they cease to have any meaning in their hearts. And these words have then become vain repetition. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with using these exact words, but you don't need to pray in Jesus' name in order to pray in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name means praying according to his will. It doesn't mean, Jesus explains that it doesn't mean here that he will ask for us, even though he does intercede on our behalf. It means that disciples can now pray directly to the Father because the Father loves them. This is a new thing. The Father loves them because they love Jesus and believe who he is. Something new is happening here. And there's three important, sorry, four important time markers in this passage, in these few verses. In that day, verse 23, we've already discussed. Until now, in verse 24. The hour is coming, verse 25. And in that day, verse 26, these are time markers. These are pointing to a change. Something new is happening. The hour is coming when Jesus would no longer speak in veiled ways. When he would speak to them plainly. When Jesus explained the parable of the sower in Luke 8, he said, To you it has been given to know the secret of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. He was speaking there for the benefit of the disciples, not for the crowds. But the time would come, Jesus says, that he would speak plainly to the disciples about the Father. And we see this in really being fulfilled in the day of Pentecost and, and then all through, all through the, the epistles. As, as we see things, David Vokes and I were talking the other day about things that are, are, are on the words of Jesus in the epistles that we don't ever read about in the Gospels. And I think here that, that, that Paul, as he was taught personally by Jesus, received extra revelation that the other 11 that the other 11 initial disciples had not yet received. That's why, as I said last week, the, 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 the words of the Bible are all Jesus' words, not just the words that are in red. After the cross, Christians will be able to go to the Father in the name of Jesus through the mediation of Jesus. We can approach the throne of a holy God in confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. A.W. Pink explains, As the God of Israel, he had been known. 
But now believers were to approach him in the conscious relationship of children addressing their father. Think about that. That we can go to God Almighty as our father. Our father. Does that not fill you with joy? To know that God the Father is your Father if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. He goes on, if even evil people know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Beloved, if you are in Christ, God is our Father, and he will not withhold any good gift from us. James 1.17 Does that not fill you with joy? Does that not prompt prayer? Now we have to admit that there, for all of us, there are times when, when these, even these glorious truths don't fill us with joy. When, when, when we don't know this in our flesh, when we're, we're not joyful when we consider these things. But when it doesn't, when you don't experience joy, we need to reorient ourselves to the gospel. We need to consider these things anew. When despairing thoughts come, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Remembering that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Despairing thoughts will come, but the gospel is the antidote for them. We need to see all of life through the context, through the lens of the cross. And then you will experience joy. You will experience that joy to the full. Finally, in verses 28 to 33, Jesus says that they will have consuming fear, but overcoming joy. Now, this is Jesus' final farewell to his disciples before he goes to the cross. But for him, there is no hint of defeat. These words resound with victory. Jesus was in the world for a time, but he would be leaving soon. Jesus came from the Father, and he's going to the Father. Jesus knows where he came from, and he knows where he is going. The disciples are encouraged by this. And they say, ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They knew that Jesus knew all things. And they thought that they understood. But they only understood part of the picture. Calvin explains that they did not fully understand the meaning of Christ's discourse but though they were not capable of, capable of this, the mere scent of it refreshed them. The mere scent of it refreshed them. 
And so they gave this expression of trust. They were fumbling towards him. But then Jesus displayed another act of omniscience. He knew what was really in their hearts. And he replied, do you now believe? Do you now believe? It was a rhetorical question. He wasn't looking for an answer. So he continued, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. It's not just Peter. They would all flee. The shepherd would be struck, and the sheep would be scattered. But in Matthew 26, the Lord says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. God strikes the shepherd. God strikes the shepherd. He was punished by the Father in our place. But even still, Jesus was not alone. He knows that the Father is with him. And it's only in that culmination of the cross that is the only moment in all of eternity when the Father forsakes the Son. And he does that because of us. Because our sin was placed on Christ. When that happened, Jesus said, it is finished. And he gave up his life. So the father forsook the son on the cross, but the son willingly bore even that out of love for the father and love for the elect. But then immediately, Jesus turns back to promising them victory. Even though they would flee, they would come back to him, even as he would come back to them. He says they would have peace. Jesus was leaving, but they would have to remain in the world for a time. And he says that in the world they would have tribulation. But in Jesus they would have peace. And Jesus offers them his own peace. He said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The world is willing to seek peace in anything except Jesus. Alcohol, drugs, lust, idolatry, all of these things, the world seeks, in all of these things, the world seeks for peace but never finds it. Seeks for peace but never finds it. Jesus tells his disciples, take heart, for he has overcome the world. Take heart. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Jesus has overcome the world. And if you are here as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you are a living testimony of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world because he has overcome the world in your heart. Because you know that at one time you sought for all of those things that the world wanted. 
You wanted the pleasures of the world. You wanted the, the, the pleasure of sin for a season. You wanted all of those things that God hates. But if you're in Christ, you now hate the things that Jesus hates. And you love the things that Jesus loves because he has overcome the world in your heart. And you can have peace no matter what circumstances you are facing because you know that Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus had unshakable confidence knowing where he came from and where he was going. Brothers and sisters, through the word of God and the Holy Spirit, we also can have unshakable confidence knowing where we came from and knowing where we are going. For the disciple, the victory of Jesus is our victory. For the world, the victory of Jesus is their defeat. The world rejoiced at the cross, thinking that they had won. They didn't anticipate the resurrection. So are you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, living with not just the cross in your mind, but the resurrection in your mind? knowing that the victory of Christ has been credited to your account, that his righteousness has been credited to your account. Beloved, that is our confidence. But for a holy God, and that is our confidence while we live in this fallen world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this precious passage of Scripture. We thank you for the promises, Lord Jesus, that you fulfilled. And we thank you that they were true not just for, for the 11 disciples, but Lord, we know that that's true for us too if our faith is in you. Lord, I pray that you would enable us by your Spirit to see these truths with eyes of faith, that you would impress them into our hearts so that we might be even more confident than eyewitnesses, so that your name might be praised in our lives, so that we can say, whether by life or by death, may you be glorified in our body. We pray this in Jesus' name.